This is Professor Allen, and welcome to the Quarterbin. In every episode of this podcast, I will summarize, criticize, discuss, and review some issues from my comic book collection, which many episodes I will select kind of at random. Any books from my comic book collection are eligible, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents each for them. Were the issues worth 25 cents? Were they bargains at 25 cents? Or were they still overpriced? Stay tuned and find out. For this 97th episode of the Quarterbin Podcast, we will finally escape from the Vertigo Vortex. But only after we cover Fables 73, 74, and 75, cover dated July, August, and September 2008. This is the War and Pieces storyline. But first, a little feedback. I was Joe Crawford, tweeted in that he had recently purchased, read, and loved the Enemy Ace special. Mark Sweeney asked if it was a quarter bin inspired pickup, as we'd covered that back in episode 90. I would say yes, I was Joe replied, but truthfully, I never skipped DC War books. On our Sandman coverage from episode 95, Nathaniel Wayne from the Council of Geeks wrote a surprisingly positive and complimentary email. This is in contrast to the professional buzzkill nickname he has earned for his feedback on various Shortbox Showcase episodes. Anyway, Nathaniel wrote in to say that he was stunned to hear that I had found an issue of this series so cheap. He then went on to talk about his Sandman history. It was a series I read while in college, well after it had completed its run. A friend lent me the first trade, and then when I'd finished it, he'd lent me the next. I burned through the whole thing in less than a month. For quite a while, it stood as my favorite completed piece of comic book artistry. Though it would slip in my own personal rankings thanks to Transmetropolitan, I still think it's probably the better work overall and acknowledge that Transmet just hits my own personal buttons a little harder. Nathaniel commented that between our episodes here and a recent discussion on Radio vs. the Martians, that those had made him realize that despite the esteem he held Vertigo in, Sandman and Transmet were the only two series he actually read to the end. Most of the other Vertigo stuff I either lost enthusiasm for or it just didn't grab me much more than, huh, well that's a nifty idea, I guess. Both Why the Last Man and Preacher only held my interest for about four volumes before I felt that the former was starting to stall for time, while the latter was only about 70% as clever as it thought it was. Now that's the Nathaniel Wayne I recognize. But as you've noticed, he continues, Sandman stuck the landing in a way that few completed series have. I think the key is that by shaking up the storytelling formula for each mini-arc, the series never felt like it was repeating itself or loading itself with filler. It all felt very deliberate, and how it all wrapped up only served to reinforce that. That might be part of why Transmet is just slightly better for me. It managed to also avoid ever spinning its wheels without employing a trick like a complete storytelling method switch 
not to imply that Gaiman was being gimmicky. Overall, a great episode talking about great issues of a great comic. Though, was there such a thing as a bad or even mediocre issue of Sandman? Well, if you're Dr. Ange, then yes, all of them. But Nathaniel says, if there was, don't tell me. Let this jaded-before-his-time sad sack have as few precious, nostalgic golden calves. Geekily yours, Nathaniel Wayne. And on last issue, the issue we covered of 100 Bullets, brought in a few comments, including from Mark Sweeney, who had this to say, Excellent handling of some difficult, though equally excellent, material. But my comments about Brian Azzarello and JMS generated the lion's share of the comments, mostly from Dr. Ange, who, as you remember, does not like Sandman, which does bring all of his other opinions in to be questioned. Let's be honest. I have never read this series, Dr. Ange said. When it came out, I was in a retro time of my comics, reading almost purely superhero escapist stuff, but the concept sounds great. But the big thing about this podcast was your lifetime pass for JMS. I have the exact opposite reaction. I will never spend another cent on him. That's a story for another time. Maybe when you review a JMS issue. I did warn the good doctor that there are in fact a number of JMS series and issues in the database. So maybe, just maybe. He says he loved Supreme Power, but grounded the WW debacle. His way of leaving a book after he sets it on a ruinous path. Hashtag enough. The great Kansan, Greg Arujo, agreed with the doc. Also, even though I like Supreme Power, I have to give it an incomplete because it didn't reach its conclusion. It goes back to my feelings about writers from other mediums who work on comics, even though JMS started there. It's not a hobby. That's a fair point, Greg, totally. His comment there was partly in response to my thoughts that JMS seems maybe more suited to being an independent creator, like like writing a film script or running a TV show, rather than working under a comics editor. Getting back around to the actual topic of the episode, 100 Bullets, Greg also said that it's a series I've tried many times to read, but could never finish. There's something about Azarello's work that leaves me cold. Again, Greg, fair enough. And we heard again from the very wise, and as we will see, uh, passionate, Vera Wild about 100 Bullets. Spoilers, her reaction to the story were not quite as positive as mine. Dear Professor, I'll be blunt about it. I kind of hate Brian Azzarello's work. Now, to be fair, I haven't actually been exposed to all that much of it, but I hated the animated version of The Killing Joke, which he scripted the adaptation for, so I'm blaming him for the 30-minute character destruction of Barbara Gordon at the front end of that. And his work on the new 52 Wonder Woman, I hated that so much that I've had less than zero interest in ever touching anything with the man's name on it ever again. Of course, when I say this, the title 100 Bullets is always thrown out immediately as the thing I should check out to turn me around on him. Well, having heard this synopsis and review, I feel like I can safely pass on the series. Because if it's at all representative of the book overall, then it's not going to prove my opinion of the man's work. What I heard in that episode irked me 
on multiple levels. If I had to sum up my problems with Azarello, as I've come across him before, it's that his female characters are devoid of agency. They lack any narrative function besides that prescribed by their relationship to a male figure. His Wonder Woman is reimagined as somebody whose power comes from being a demigod, i.e. now she's special because of the man her mother slept with. And every female character in those first three volumes, I couldn't bring myself to go past that, is fundamentally defined or valued relative to the most important man in their life. So what about this issue of 100 Bullets you talked about? It's a mother avenging her daughter. Isn't that female empowerment? Not automatically, no. And not when all sides of the story still come back to masculine influence driving literally everything about the narrative. The mother is set on the path of revenge by an outside male force and takes that revenge against a male force where everything can be traced to. The mother doesn't have agency. She's just playing out the exact sequence of events that Agent Graves has set up. None of this would have happened without him. She's a pawn in the story, as is the daughter, who's only important as a motivator for a man to step in and set up the final comeuppance. The mother is no more empowered than the person who administers the lethal injection at an execution. Does all of this make this a bad story? No, it doesn't. And honestly, if I'd read it totally in a vacuum, it probably wouldn't bother me much. But it fits the patterns I already see in Azarello's work that I don't like. He's clearly suited for telling masculine stories, and that's not an inherent fault. It's true of many comic book writers. Frank Miller certainly springs to mind. However, when somebody with such an inability to handle properly rounded, nuanced, or just flat-out self-sufficient female characters is given the reins of stalwarts like Wonder Woman and Batgirl. Yeah, I'm going to hold a grudge over that, and it's going to taint my opinion of everything that writer does. Of course, Professor, my vitriol is directed at the book and the writer, and none of it is meant for you in this episode, which is well done, as always. Sorry for venting my hang-ups at you, but sometimes it has to be done. Keep up the great work, Vera Wild, fashion vlogger and burlesque queen. There are details I'd consider responding to in that, but it's so well thought out and complete, I'm just going to let that stand. I will say this to Vera, and I say that to anyone who listens. Feel free to rant in the comments or in an email to me. I welcome all opinions, even those that aren't exactly in line with mine. Iron sharpens iron. Free speech is a good thing, and I can handle opinions other than my own. And I do thank Vera and Greg and Dr. Ange and others for not taking our disagreements to a personal level. Very classy, everybody. And I do mean that. I do thank you for that. Mountain Flower Laurel added her thoughts on last issue. First, the Vertigo Vortex. Then the snazzy intro from Tom Zoller. Is there more buildup yet to come? Can Quarterbin Podcast Episode 100 equal the hype? Probably not, Laurel. Probably not. The posts for last episode were shared via social mediums by Iowa's Joe Crawford of the For the Non-Discerning Reader blog, Dr. Ange, 
Clinton at the Coffee and Comics blog and podcast, The Long Box Crusade, FKA Jason from the Silver and Gold podcast, The Sutherland's Mark Sweeney from I'm the Gun, and Cash Flag. In terms of the three books we're going to cover this episode, let me start with the first two, synopsize them briefly, and then after we take a break, I want to spend more of the discussion on Fables, issue 75. That's also where I'll talk about the series as a whole. But first, Fables 73 and 74, which had cover prices of $2.99, meaning I acquired these books, at just over a 91% markdown. Sort of. Shag, you might want to skip the next minute or so. Because it was a unique set of circumstances that brought these issues down to the podcast-appropriate price. They were not tagged or priced at 25 cents when I found them at a grand opening celebration of a new location of half-price books. Everything in the store was on sale, and because I was one of the first 100 people in line one day during that grand opening weekend, I also got a $5 gift card. So between all of those savings, I ended up with these three books and another eight, a total of 11, for just under 250 It averaged to well under a quarter each. And for the rare exceptional case, or when I really feel like it, that's good enough for me. Okay, Shag, you can come back now. The cover of issue 73 by James Jean is striking. A statuesque, angelic-type being is soaring into the sky. The being is holding a sword at her side. The story in issue 73, Voyage of the Sky Treader, was written by Bill Willingham with art by Mark Buckingham, Steve Lealoha, and Andrew Peepoy. And yes, the title is a reference to a novel in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. Issue 73 starts with And so we went to war, and this time we planned to win. For once, we had no intention to hold out as long as possible, doing the best we could in a lost cause, fighting a valiant but doomed campaign. The narrator is Blue Boy, Little Boy Blue, who along with Prince Charming and others rides the glory of Baghdad, a flying magical ship held together by more than 300 flying carpets pressed between the inner and outer hulls. This time, we planned to act decisively, meeting force with overwhelming force, giving the enemy no chance at a fair fight. This time we cheat. This time, we brought guns to a sword fight. Literally, they have access to modern weapons, such as guns, and the Empire is at a loss on how to respond. Blue visits Big B, or the Big Bad Wolf, who is building a secret underground fort back in the homelands. These are the mythical lands from which the fairy tales, folklore, and nursery rhyme characters in the series come. As the series started 72 issues before, the homelands had been conquered by the mysterious adversary, forcing the fables to form a clandestine community in New York City known as Fabletown. They also plant their last magical beanstalk in Haven to serve as their last backdoor to safety should things go poorly. 
So no matter what goes wrong or what forces the Empire sends against us, we stand fast. We don't surrender and we don't retreat. We need to hold this ground. But at the same time, the evil Snow Queen tells the Emperor that they'll send every dragon and flying creature they have to burn the airship out of the sky. The Emperor, by the way, is an enormous blue monster with red eyes, but is in fact a figurehead merely, a puppet whose strings are being pulled by Geppetto, the adversary. Boy Blue also gives Briar Rose an important role in the plan. The glory of Baghdad begins bombing Empire gateways, again using flying carpet technology and one very scared pilot each. Boy Blue returns to Fabletown to check on their fortification. Even Bigby's mansion has become a base of operations. After the glory of Baghdad's 13th successful bombing run, the skies darken around it. It's thousands of dragons. Will mere guns, or even their bunker busters, fend this attack off? And at the same time, a small imperial patrol stumbles across the secret, albeit giant, beanstalk. Bad luck all around, right? The cover of issue 74, also by James Jean, is striking. Again. A woman, maybe that same statue, angelic being from 73 has collapsed onto a marble floor. Whatever fruit, maybe apples, that this woman had been carrying are scattered around her. The story, A Very One-Sided War, was of course also written by Bill Willingham, with art by Mark Buckingham and Steve Lealoha. Issue 74 starts in Geppetto's restored cottage in the hills above the Imperial City. He is distressed, by recent Empire losses, including the failure of the dragon attack. Blue Boy takes credit rightfully for their successful tactic, Metal Storm. We borrow this from the Mundy militaries. Its premise is simple. Fire every gun as fast as it can expend its ammo. Fill the immediate area with so much deadly crap that nothing can survive there. Nothing ever got close to touching us and we suffered no casualties beyond my near exhaustion. The airship completed another four bombing missions without a hitch. Snow White reunites Blue Boy and Pinocchio, who is now on their side. This despite his having been entirely under Geppetto's sway for quite some time. The Emperor and Snow Queen talk about them nearly losing the war, but they have one tactic left. I've set a trap on the skyship's route of travel, the Emperor says. Your last dragon? The one you held back from the attack? Meanwhile, Briar Rose pricks her finger and waits for 60 seconds to pass. Blue Boy explains. One of the biggest and most vital parts of her war plan was the gambit to take out the Empire's entire ruling city without firing a shot. One tiny drop of Briar Rose's blood was all it took. We see images of people all over the Imperial City falling asleep wherever they are. The enchantment designed to ruin her lifetime became under the deft manipulation of some truly devious minds, a terrific weapon 
of very potent spellcraft. And at the Emperor's palace, guards summon the medical sorcerers. The Snow Queen has been stricken. In fact, she's just fallen asleep. And while the Imperial City drifts off, Blue Boy comments that by any measure, it was a great day. Not enough to make up for the horrors of the next day, though. Okay, let's take a break here, and when we come back, we'll finish the war and talk about the issues and the entire series. Beautiful as Aphrodite. Wise as Athena. Stronger than Hercules. Swifter than Mercury. Explore the 75-year history of the Amazon princess with Wonder Woman, Warrior for Peace, a monthly podcast available on iTunes, Stitcher, and at wonderwomanwarriorforpeace.wordpress.com. And we're back. Fables 75 was an oversized issue that had a cover price of $4.99, meaning I acquired that book at just under a 95% markdown. The cover of Fable 75, which I couldn't find an official credit for, but I assume was also by James Jean, is striking again. We see a woman, maybe the same from 73 and 74, from the shoulders up, strange, creepy vapor is emanating from her, rising up from her. Roses surround her. As we've gone on through this arc, each of these covers is a little more disheartening, a little darker than the one before. The story in issue 75, The Fire Ship, was of course also written by Bill Willingham, with art by Buckingham, Lealoha, and Peepoy. The issue starts aboard the airship Glory of Baghdad, which has just bombed the penultimate Empire Gateway. Very well, ladies and gentlemen, make all preparations to get underway to our final target. One more gate, one more bomb, and then our campaign is finished. We can return to our respective homes flushed with victory and covered in well-deserved glory. And at that final beanstalk mentioned before, Bigby and his team continue to successfully fight off hordes of invaders. Their modern firepower overwhelms medieval-era troops and weapons. The Empire is gathering all their forces for one final assault of the Beanstalk. The glory of Baghdad heads that way to offer air support, figuring a few well-placed bombs will discourage the Imperial forces. Except for that one final dragon... And it's a really big final dragon who knows its duty. Behold, as I burn this fat, unwieldy blight out of the pure sky. And he does. The airship ignites and the conflagration reaches the ammo stores. In a heck of a two-page spread, Captain Sinbad gives the order. Abandon ship! In the burning aftermath, Sinbad and Prince Charming think they can salvage enough flying carpets to still transport the final bomb, which crashed into the water without exploding. 
At the Beanstalk battle, the Empire uses one of the few enchanted items still in their possession, the Arrow of Dire Fate. It will fly true to any target chosen for it, and the magical error hits Boy Blue and scratches Bigby. Both go down, and their comrades pronounce them dead. Prince Charming and Sinbad begin to deliver the last bomb in a makeshift carrying contraption, but delivering it safely will be impossible. One of them has to stay with the bomb to light the fuse. Prince Charming enters the cave, telling Sinbad that if it doesn't go well, tell every woman I've ever known that it was her in my last thoughts at the end. That should keep you busy for a couple of years. Meanwhile, the Empire attacks Bigby's base in the homelands. There's a line about, who died and made you commander? To which an officer replies, Bigby died. But we learn that the medic sorcerer said the wolf would be okay and back in action soon. He does return four days later. Even though the Fables team keep winning skirmishes, their losses are adding up. They're down to half their original fighting force. And Bigby, now in full wolf form, goes one-on-one, mano a mano, with the Emperor. The wolf loses the first skirmish, but in round two he wins by loosening the Emperor's leg joints while Boy Blue decapitates the Emperor with the same sword he used to deliver a similarly fateful coup de grace many moons ago. And that, my friends, is how the Great War ended. At the funerals, Mr. Toad is confirmed dead, and likely Prince Charming as well. A six-hour magical surgery is required to remove the poison arrow from Blue. He and Bigby and Pinocchio take Geppetto to Fable Town, where he is quite unrepentant, and the presence of the great adversary in their land makes everyone a little nervous. But he does agree to terms of surrender. Looking back, we officially date the end of the war at the exact moment that Geppetto, our adversary of the ages, affixed his name to the Fable Town Compact, thus accepting the general amnesty and becoming a member in full of Fable Town. In the days and months to follow, we'd have to deal with the chaos we'd left behind in his former empire. Hundreds of worlds were suddenly on their own for the first time in centuries. But at the time, I doubt there was one of us who didn't see a bright and shining future ahead of us. What can I say? Even immortal fables must be forgiven their rare moments of naivete. The end. From television, over the last, what, five years or so, we've become acquainted with the concept of the mid-season finale. Maybe The Walking Dead has perfected this, and certainly Arrow had a dramatic one a few years back, with spoilers, Ollie getting stabbed through by Ra's al Ghul. And now, pretty much every show builds the first part of their season to a finale, as well as their entire season, of course. That mid-season episode will often feature high drama, and at least potential status quo changes for the characters and the plot. And that is what this arc is specifically what issue 75 is. And yes, Fables did go 150 issues. So this is the exact midpoint. And Willingham must have known that, or at least that must have been his plan all along. 
Now, when I first discovered Fable, started reading it, I was reading it in trades. And I was in the process of catching up quickly, but I was still a couple of trades behind when I got to these issues. So I knew that the story continued past 75. But after reading this, I didn't know where it could go. I don't know that I emphasize this enough in the synopsis, but the specter of this battle with the adversary has hung over the fable since... I was going to say since issue one, but actually it's from before issue one. The original fight with Geppetto was what caused the exile in the first place. So to bring that arc to a close and bring Geppetto into the fold in Fable Town, that's huge. And it does have a sense of finality to it. This is such a great wrap-up, not just to this arc, but this really does wrap up the first 75 issues, that mega arc. Had the series ended here, it would have been quite satisfying. This does end with a death or two, a casualty of war here and there. But it's also pretty much a happy ending. So it's definitely a finale. It brings the first six years or so of Fables to an end and really does represent a hinge point in the series. What comes next is a transitional period. I've read up through 140 now and it continues to be excellent, but it is a bit different than what came before, what happened before this arc. A couple of points on this arc, issue 75 in particular. I focus on 75 because it's actually longer than 73 and 74 combined. And it's the culmination, not just of the arc, but again, of the entire series up to this point. Willingham wanted this arc to end at 75, obviously, because it moves really fast, way faster than the prior arcs. Even with 50-plus pages of story, In issue 75, there's not much downtime. There are character bits, but they all take place in the context of, and maybe even secondarily to, moving the plot along. And that's not what Fables has been up to this point. This is a fantasy world, and it tends to move at that more languid pace that we associate with fantasy epics. But here, because the story demands plot, because it demands action, and because attention to the specific details of troop movements and sieges and territories claimed, that's all important. So that's what it does. And it does it really well. After page one, which is opposite an ad on the inside cover, obviously, the rest of the issue is told in two-page spreads. These are not splash pages, as the pages are divided lengthwise into a a varying number of long, skinny panels. And that's a design choice that really enhances the sense of scope and and scale to the story. And Buckingham, Leia Loha, and Peepoy really outdid themselves. Really interesting, top-quality work. I took these three issues with me to Baltimore Comic Con last September and had them signed by Mark Buckingham and Andrew Peepoy. And for the record, both were really friendly. Nice fellas. Interesting thing about Fables, compared to some of the recent books we've covered here from Vertigo, is that this book is not a unique take or an original concept. 100 Bullets, like it or not, is a totally unique pitch. It's, It's something you just don't see. 
the, the take on Animal Man is actually pretty unusual, too. What Gaiman does with Sandman, I think, is pretty original, too. But this, Fables, we've seen this plenty of times. Whether it's literary characters forced to live in the real world, that's been done. And the idea of taking public domain characters and smashing them together, that's been done plenty of times. And sometimes with fairy tale characters, reimagined fairy tales, from Cinder to Wicked, that's been done before. Both Grimm and Once Upon a Time have had long runs recently on television. This, in a sense, is League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. To some extent, it's the Archie crossovers with Punisher, or Kiss even. Or all those crossovers that Star Trek has done recently. If you want to go back to my childhood, this is Laugh Olympics. I I say all of that to say that it's not the premise, the concept, the idea that makes Fables the terrific series it is. No, it's all in the execution of the premise. It's all in the specifics of the story that Willingham tells here. It's the way that Buckingham and Lealoha and Peepoy and all the other artists execute that vision, contribute their skills to that vision. It's Todd Klein doing world-class lettering, and Lee Lawfridge and all the others contributing as colorists. To me, this is one of the best realized total packages of a comic book series. I really dig it, and these three issues are among the best. There's a reason this has won and been nominated for so many Eisners. I mentioned the C.S. Lewis reference in the title of issue 73, The Voyage of the Sky Treader. There's also possibly a Tolkien reference, not just in, in this issue, but in the series. As the term, the adversary, is widely seen by many as being based on the term, the enemy, a reference to Sauron. Although as listeners of our religion and theology-based podcast, Dorkness to Light, no... The title, The Adversary, could also be a reference to both the Old and New Testament writings, where the name Satan actually comes from the Hebrew word for adversary. And yes, this series is one of those, similar to Sandman, I suppose, that attracts a much larger female audience than the average comic book. Fables is often at the very top of the list of comics to get your girlfriend interested in reading comics, that sort of thing. So I'm saying this to the male listeners. Just be careful. If you're flipping through back issue bins and run across issues of fables, there may very well be cooties. So guys, just just take precautions, okay? The Verdict on Fables, 73, 74, and 75. I know, these aren't really quarter books in the traditional sense. These do not fill up your average cheap bins. The cheapest I've ever seen these particular issues at actual suggested retail price is a buck, although I've seen a few issues of Fables at, at, at lower prices. But they generally can't be found at two bits. But these are terrific books, and theoretically... If you ever did find them with a 25-cent price, they would definitely be steals. Don't quote me on this next part, 
but they're pretty good deals at double that, maybe even four times that, especially the super mega-sized issue 75. Issue 75 also has about an 8 or 10 page section of pinups by various artists, and of course the one by Darwin Cook is especially terrific and adorable. That wraps up my coverage of the War and Pieces arc of Fables, bringing episode 97 of the podcast to a close, which also brings the Vertigo Vortex miniseries to a close. A miniseries which we could just as well have named the Thank You Karen Berger for being the best editor in the History of Comics series. And I guess with the recent changes to the Vertigo line, I'm going to call this a dead universe. So Vertigo will join the Ultraverse, the new universe, and Amalgam as dead universes that we've covered here on the Quarterbin. So we won't be talking about any more Vertigos here, at least for a long while. But fear not, there are plenty of books in the cheap bins from other universes, dead and not so dead, to keep us plenty busy over here. This also brings the epic, epic, epic episode 100 just that much closer. We'll talk about the details later, but let me give you a sneak preview. In the grand tradition of comic events, episode 100 is looking to be an all-summer extravaganza, probably six parts long. I expect to put out two parts in June, two in July, and two in August. Why? that long? Why is it going to take that many parts to do episode 100? Because for episode 100, we'll be covering 100 comics. None of them, by the way, are 100 bullets. So Vera, you're safe. But we have some work to do until we get to that, including episode 98, which I expect will be our celebration of the official holiday of the Quarter Bin Podcast. Because if my May 6th goes as planned, we'll be talking next episode about all the comics I picked up at Free Comic Book Day 2017. So if you have any questions or comments about this issue, the episode, the Vertigo Vortex, the Fables, Bill Willingham... Or what the heck, JMS or Brian Azzarello? Or the podcast in general? Feel free to contact me. Until next episode, I'm Professor Allen, and I'll see you in the quarter bin. The quarter bin podcast is part of the relatively geeky family of podcasts. Show notes and links are available at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com where the podcasts Uncovering the Bronze Age and Shortbox Showcase also make their home. Links to Facebook and Twitter are there as well. Feedback for the show is welcome at relativelygeeky at gmail.com And if you like what we've got going here, please leave a review and a rating in iTunes. It'll help more people discover the show. Thanks again for listening. Sir! Sure.